Good afternoon. We had a great time on Friday. Some of us, uh, Stephen Rachels, thank you to them at the bonfire party. Um, unfortunately, I had a close shave with a dodgy firework <laughs> alongside Richard. Um, we, we, yeah, I tried to kind of cool it out and look like I'm meant to roll backwards and lie on the grass. But um, someone reminded me afterwards that as we began our studies in 1 Thessalonians, that I'd describe the gospel as God's dynamite. I wasn't expecting that to be a visual aid of God's dynamite. But in, we, we've lingered in chapter one of the last few weeks because we've been thinking about gospel power. And we're going to pick up the pace a little bit today as we look at chapter two and think about what I want to call gospel integrity. This, this is a brilliant and beautiful chapter. Paul here describes for us his ministry ethos, his ministry DNA, if you like. And it's beautiful because their lives matched what they taught. And it's brilliant because in talking about his own approach, in a sense, Paul is teaching them, he, he, he's setting a tone for how every Christian community that seeks to share the gospel should function and what it should look like. I, I've been stirred this week as I've looked at this chapter and I so long for these verses to shape our own life together as a Christian community here and for our church family to reflect these values that we're going to look at this afternoon here in chapter two. Let me set this up and introduce this chapter by saying this. A number of social commentators have described the times in which we live as the age of cynicism. Does that, does that resonate for you? The age of of cynicism. As consumers, we're cynical about big brands. Could share some statistics with you about that if we had more time. Um, as voters, I, I think we're largely cynical about our politicians. When we see public figures or even organizations doing things we have this instinctive ref reflex don't we in our hearts what's in it for them and ultimately underneath that cynicism is the question who can you trust who can you trust and there's a little spectrum here we know we shouldn't be gullible and believe everything and anything at one end of the spectrum but it can so often be the case, can't it, that our cynicism hardens into not being able to trust anyone at all. Both extremes are damaging. For some people, cynicism is a great virtue um, and proudly seen as a mark of intelligence and savvy. No one's going to pull the wool over my eyes. I'm too smart for that. But often, cynicism 
is completely understandable and can often be the result of being seriously let down. One Christian author claims that this kind of cynicism is closely related to suspicion and that, I quote, suspicion is the natural result of having your fingers burnt by something or someone. In other words, people are often understandably cynical because of abuses of power. We should sympathize deeply with that, even in churches. It's very hard to trust, isn't it, if you've been let down by people who broke that trust. As we look this afternoon into chapter 2, I'm not sure that the ancient world that we're looking at here was that different to ours either. It was certainly a brutal culture, but the first century also had its fair share of travelling salesmen, wandering philosophers. And perhaps when Paul and his friends arrived in Thessalonica with something to say, there were cynics there who were thinking, here we go. I wonder what magical nonsense these guys are bringing. Maybe they were waiting for the moment when these traveling preachers put their donation pots out like the street entertainers in Covent Garden, waiting for the money. It's hard for us to know whether Paul here is defending himself against cynical critics who were slandering him or whether he's just opening his heart and sharing something of his motives with his friends. In the end, it doesn't really matter, does it? What Paul is saying here is when we came to you, we weren't like this, but we were like this. You get that? We we weren't like that. We weren't second-hand car salesmen. (laughs) We weren't con men. We weren't like this, but we were like this. What we have here in these few verses is one of the most stirring descriptions of what ministry should be like in the whole of the Bible. This is the gold standard, if you like, to measure leaders, pastors, ministers, teachers. It's quite scary to preach it. In an age of cynicism, where we hear so many heartbreaking examples of leaders abusing their power and position, this is a chapter that should be framed and put on the wall in the study of every pastor, everywhere, or better still, somehow burned into their hearts. Before we dive in, it's a valid question to ask here. Is Paul just blowing his own trumpet in this chapter? He talks a lot about himself. But the really striking thing, I hope you noticed this as Hannah read it, is that over and over again, he calls these dearly beloved friends as his witnesses. Someone, I didn't count this actually, but someone has counted Let me get this right. Six times in 12 verses here, Paul says, you know, or something similar to that. In fact, chapter two starts with those two words, you know. He's writing to them and calling them as his witnesses. You know this. 
So the really challenging question here for me and for all of us is whether if we wrote a letter like this to other people, about ourselves, would they recognise what we were talking about? Would we be able to say, you know, that this is how it was? What comes shining through, I think, in these verses is not Paul's arrogance, but the deep mutual affection in this group because of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and walk through Uh, these verses and what I've tried to is group Paul's comments here under four broad headings and my idea is that these four themes will build a kind of word picture to help us to see and understand what gospel integrity uh, looks like so number one first of all gospel integrity involves joyful courage so here we're looking at just verses one and two the start of this chapter Paul begins with the confidence that their visit to Thessalonica had not been a failure which is true it hadn't been a failure there'd been gospel power we've been thinking about that chapter one a church had been planted it was hard but it had not been a waste of time. But the reality is that their arrival in Thessalonica, I mean, I don't know if you can imagine them walking, you know, they they didn't get a taxi. They're walking along the road and they arrive in Thessalonica. Their arrival was not exactly triumphal. As Paul says here, we had previously suffered which is a reference to them being severely beaten in Philippi, where they'd just come from, and insulted, which is a reference, among other things, to that being done publicly to humiliate and shame them. They didn't arrive in Thessalonica with a spirit of bravado. They they, they limped in with the equivalent of black eyes and bleeding scarred backs, And you can see from chapter 1 and verse 6 that this continued when they got to Thessalonica. Paul writes to them there and says, You became imitators of us and the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy. So where they'd come from was hard. Where they arrived, limping in was hard. And then when they left, the thugs from Thessalonica were not content to simply let them go and say good riddance. They followed them down the road and tried to silence them by having their heads kicked in where they went. So where they'd come from, where they were, and where they went. You could forgive Paul and his friends if these hardships had destroyed their confidence, couldn't you? Caused them to give up or tread carefully. They, they could have said, this is a team here, Paul, Silas, Timothy. They could have said, lads, we've had a rough time in Philippi. When we get to Thessalonica, let's tone it down a bit, shall we? But this opposition didn't dampen their enthusiasm. It seems to have fired it. You get something of Paul's joyful defiance in verse 2. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, 
as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. I wonder if the idea of boldness here has two sides to it. On the one hand, it describes a refusal to give in to fear of their opponents. But surely, on the other hand, it implies a huge confidence in the message itself. We dared to tell you what? His gospel. This is the gospel of God. This is not their own message. This is not something they dreamed up. Sometimes our biggest fear is not so much persecution. Maybe our biggest fear is rejection. We can be tempted maybe to change the message, to make it more palatable. Or we get so focused maybe on numbers that we start to do things to draw a crowd Paul, of course, isn't being deliberately provocative for the sake of it or looking for trouble. But at no point does he or his friends give in to the temptation to dilute the message in order to be more popular. Paul's method was to keep the word of God front and centre with joy and with courageous resilience. So gospel integrity involves joyful courage. Secondly, gospel integrity involves truthful sincerity. I'm thinking here about verses 3 to, to verse the beginning of verse 6. Let's call it 6a. The, the 6b is going to be part of the next heading. This section flows from the first, in a sense, because, of course, continuing to preach under such violent and abusive opposition demonstrates that they weren't in it for the money or the likes, were they? They ran risks because they were compelled by the truth of the message from God that they were bringing. And in this little next section, Paul seems to swing between denials and affirmations. He describes what they were not doing. And then he gives them clear reasons for why they were doing what they were doing. And then he slips back into other things that they weren't doing. It's like, we're not this, we're all this, we're not this. First of all, in verse 3, Paul gives three separate negatives. That he says they're not like. So in verse 3, for the appeal we make does not spring from error, that's number one. Impure motives, that's number two. Nor are we trying to trick you, that's number three. We're not making a mistake here. Our message is true. We have no ulterior motive here. What you see is what you get. And we're not trying to trick anyone. There's no, there's no small print in the contract that you'll find out later. We were trying to deceive you. I, I think it's worth underlining here that Paul is not claiming to be infallible here. The reason he knows his message is true 
and not full of errors is not because he's perfect, but because the message is the gospel of God rather than something that he dreamt up himself. That's why he can say this, our appeal doesn't spring from error. How could it? It's the gospel of God. And that means there's nothing grubby or shady or manipulative about what they're doing here. In verse 4, Paul begins to give some positives, and it's a very strong contrast. Um, the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives or trickery. On the contrary, he says, on the contrary, that is a strong word in the original. I, I don't know how Paul would say that. On the contrary, no, 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 we're not like this. No. Why? Well, rather than being manipulative, Paul says, astonishingly, we are approved by God himself to be entrusted with the gospel. What a bold claim. The real punch in this idea actually comes at the end of verse 4, when Paul says that God is the one who tests their hearts. Just imagine this for a moment. Someone sends you to, like, you know, bring a message to other people. But the sender who tells you to go with this message has the superpower of knowing exactly what's in your heart. He, he, he knows what you, what you say, why you say it, how you say it. If you knew that the sender had that superpower... You, you couldn't change the message, could you? you? You couldn't, like, adapt the message to make it something that it wasn't because the sender would know. And this, this, in this case, this is not a one-off test, like passing a driving test and then being unleashed on the roads for the next 30 years. He doesn't say that God tested their hearts and gave them a certificate to be a minister. What he says is God tests our heart, the sense of it is that this is continual, ongoing, daily scrutiny. All of their work is being done under the watchful eye of the sender. The God who sees it all is constantly examining and weighing and testing their hearts. And according to Paul, he is beaming with approval. So Paul here has a higher motive than just being a people pleaser. He isn't trying to win a popularity contest. His gospel integrity is rooted in the fact that his main audience is one. The sender. He's the one who tests our hearts. Verse 5. As well as calling God as his witness, he also knows that they know too. God is our witness and you also know that we never used flattery and we never pretended to be something we weren't for financial gain. That little word flattery, uh, when I first read that, I thought that meant, you know, like buttering people up and um, saying nice things about them. But apparently the word it's more about the practice of tailoring the truth to fit popular opinion. 
Paul didn't just say what he thought his hearers wanted to hear. And there's no secret greed here, either for money or for compliments. So sometimes you see silly things on the internet and um, I, I, I was thinking I might show you a clip of this, but I thought it would be too irreverent. The, the, a while ago, our kids, you'll know what I mean, not irreverent, but a, a while ago, our kids came across a parody song called Give Me Compliments. Has anyone seen it? Oh, I look it up on, on Google. This guy bemoans the fact that he does the washing up and he takes the rubbish out and he obeys all the traffic rules and no one, never, not his wife or any member of the public has ever given him a compliment. And so he gets to the chorus and he does this little dance. Give me compliments. Give me compliments. And it's like, it's a, it's a parody song, but it, it kind of highlights that so much of our lives are driven by this constant need for approval. We'd never say that, would we? We'd ne- this is the case of a preacher. To preach in a way that is subtly saying, give me compliments. That Paul, Paul's saying, we weren't greedy for money. He didn't come to Thessalonica wanting or expecting cheering crowds. Look at verse 6. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anybody else. Gospel integrity involves joyful courage and truthful sincerity. These first two headings are a bit more objective, aren't they? Paul's ministry is both fearless and resilient straightforward and plain and sincere but the next two are more relational so thirdly gospel integrity involves warm affection i'm looking here at verses six to nine paul goes on to convey something of the warmth of his love his affection for these dear friends in this ancient city. What I want you to notice here, first of all, is that Paul uses the word burden twice. So you'll see it, first of all, there in the second half of verse 6. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But he uses the word again in verse 9, We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. So he uses the word burden twice. Paul is saying, when we came to you, we could have placed a weight on your shoulders. But we didn't. We could have done, but we didn't. And there are two different kinds of weight here. The first relates to authority and the second relates more to money. So when Paul says, first of all, we could have been a burden to you because we were apostles of Christ, he's speaking there, first of all, about his authority. Now, 
to be clear, we don't have apostles now. An apostle, biblically, was a person who had seen the risen Christ and been personally and specially commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. That's what an apostle was. The New Testament is built on that foundation. Paul was an apostle of Christ. Now, we, we know that authority and weight are connected because you'll all be able to imagine, maybe, a bad manager or a bad boss that you've come across in your life. And what do we say sometimes about idiot managers? We, we say something like, they love to throw their weight around, don't we? Or authority has got some connection to weight. Don't they love to throw their weight around? What do we mean by that? Well, I, I think what we mean is that they love for everyone to know that they're the boss. They love being in charge. They like telling other people what to do. They love the power. And they quite enjoy pressing that weight onto other people's shoulders. Did I do something? I don't know. Sorry, I had beans. <laughs> Paul is saying here, we could have been like that. We could have thrown our weight around. And actually, we, we have the greatest authority that the world has ever known. Christ sent us. If we wanted to pull rank, we could have pulled rank better than anyone else could have pulled rank. But instead of dominating you, controlling you, commanding you, Throwing our weight around with you, what were we like when we came to Thessalonica? And unbelievably, Paul pulls in the image of a nursing mum. We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for a child. We have a number of young mums with tiny babies here in our congregation. And we know what this looks like. It's a beautiful picture of tender care, gentle protection. There's nothing impatient or harsh or brusque or macho. Paul is saying here, we didn't come to Thessalonica barking orders. We came sympathising caring we love you the second idea of burden was more financial and yeah we've touched on it already often philo traveling philosophers would turn up and seek to charge their hearers they'd be looking for free board and lodgings paul says that they didn't want to place the burden of authority on them, but neither did they want to place the burden of cost on them. And as a result, Paul worked hard to pay his own way so that he could preach the gospel for free. Now, in other places, Paul urges churches to pay those who give themselves to teaching 
But it seems that whenever Paul goes to a new place, he's very careful to demonstrate that he's not in it for the cash. <laughs> so there's two different principles going on there. We know that Paul worked as a, as a craftsman with leather, cutting and sewing to make materials used in tents. He was a tent maker. Apparently this was a low-paid job and you had to basically work all the hours of daylight just to cover your living costs. And isn't this exactly what Paul says here in verse 9? It's deeply moving. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day. Night and day. Why? In order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Paul was an educated man, but none of this was beneath him. He was humble and he worked his socks off. Because he loved them. So rather than oppressing them with these two different kinds of burdens, Paul was like a gentle mother on the one hand and a terrific grafter on the other. Some people see Paul as this stern, unyielding kind of hard figure. But these words are some of the most affectionate words in all scripture i love verse 8 which is like a little love sandwich it begins with love and ends with love we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of god but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us it's almost like he's falling over himself to express his heart and generosity and love for them Paul didn't carry out his mission with a kind of detached professionalism. He wasn't distant or aloof. He loved them dearly. Remember that these guys suffered when they became Christians. Paul was there in the trenches with them. He knew them and walked with them and cared about them. We're not going to look in detail at verses 13 to 16 at the end of this little section. Maybe next time we'll, we'll kind of group it with next week's thoughts. But you can see Paul's warmth and affection there. He, he is so thankful for them and essentially says to them, you're absolutely smashing it. <laughs> Guys, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. God's word has been at work in your hearts. You're absolutely smashing it. You can hear and feel and smell the mutual affection. So Paul's ministry here was both brave and true and sympathetic. Fourthly and lastly, gospel integrity involves inspiring example. So I'm looking now lastly at verses 10 to 12. 
In verse 10, Paul becomes quite solemn and a bit serious and sort of almost like, I don't know, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. He's calling both God and them as witnesses that his behave, their behaviour has been completely above reproach. But then he uses another picture. He's not ashamed to liken himself to a loving mum. But now, in verse 11, he uses the image of a dad. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. There are three important words here in verse 12. In the NIV here, it says encouraging, comforting, and aging. Three, three words. I think these words go together to build up this picture of setting the right tone, calling them to action, but also understanding their struggles, believing in them, cheering them on. We all need the clarity, don't we, of challenge. But don't we all also need the comfort and encouragement too? Because life can be hard. It was hard for these guys. Paul knew that being a Christian was costly. And Paul just has this amazing balance of calling them to this unbelievably high standard of godliness. While never trampling on the fragile or the weak. His tone is like, come on guys, we can do this. You can do it with God's help. It's inspiring. And look at the goal he introduces at the end of verse 12. His aim is to encourage and comfort and urge them to do what? To live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. And glory. Wow. Paul doesn't motivate them by fear, but by reminding them that God calls sinners to himself and makes them his dear children. God loves them and wants the very best for them. Because that's true, God will provide everything they need. He will pick them up when they fall. It'll be everything they need every day, growing them, changing them. They are in the kingdom of God now. And the end of the journey is glory when the king returns. And like a father, Paul ages them. Come on. God calls you to this tremendously high and utterly demanding calling. This will cost you everything. But you can do it. God is with you. He's called you to this. The end of the journey is glory and it's utterly rewarding. Wow. I, I, Paul's pen. Did they have pens then? Probably not. Would have been melting. How can you pack so much goodness into so few words? But you can see that in addition to words, Paul is also the living example of everything that he says to them. His life matches his words. I came across a little poem in my preparation this week. I'd never seen it before. Um, 
the, the author who I came across didn't know where it was from either. He, he said he'd heard it preached in Scotland. So maybe it came for you and I don't know. Here's a little poem. It's only four lines. It says this. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely show the way. The eye is a better pupil, more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. Of course, we do need sermons. We do need words. We do need clarity. We do need good teaching. But the point here is that the message of the gospel can be totally torpedoed and neutralised if those who talk about it don't live it. The gospel of God can only be communicated with the power we've seen in chapter 1 if it's preached and lived with the integrity we see in chapter 2. You get that connection? So Paul sums up his ministry ethos with these four overlapping ideas, boldness, sincerity, gentleness, and inspiration, <laughs> inspiring example. I was looking for one word. Friends, is this not the kind of leadership that we all crave? Is this not how we want the world to be? One of the things, as, as we just try and draw to a close, one of the things that really strikes me with all of this is that all of this warmth and joy flowed from really hard circumstances. Tough times did not make them cynical. Sometimes the pull of cynicism is hard to resist. Sarcasm comes too easily. Complaining becomes our default small talk. And despair marks our interactions rather than joy. Friends, we wouldn't even have this letter if it were not for Thessalonica being a total car crash. And as I said at the beginning, Paul here, it is brilliant because Paul has a double purpose here. He's not just telling them how much he loves them and describing his own ministry DNA. This is identity forming. This is what a truly Christian community should look like. Perhaps we do live in the age of cynicism. I asked at the beginning, who can you trust? Some of us may well have had our fingers burnt. Some of us may well have been badly, seriously, hatefully let down. But all of this gospel integrity flows from the only person in history who could be trusted with absolute power. 
The reason Paul models these four traits is, is, is because together, don't these traits sum up Jesus? Paul was like this because he wasn't afraid of his opponents. He loved his saviour and reflected who Jesus is. Let, let me close with this. When I was a teenager, I remember hearing a Scottish preacher who made a big impression on me as a, as a youngster. He spoke very powerfully one evening on John chapter 10. Um, and I remember it partly because he, he began by asking, you know what's special about John chapter 10? It comes after John chapter 9. And then he said, you know what's special about John chapter 9? It comes after John chapter 8. Never forgotten that. We thought he was going to go on like that all night until he ran out of numbers. But his point was, in chapter 8, the religious leaders brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And they literally threw her on the ground like a piece of rubbish in front of Jesus and essentially said to him, what are you going to do about that? Their power was abusive. You then get into chapter 9 and the same religious leaders angrily threw a blind man out of the synagogue. Jesus had healed him and they threw him out of the synagogue, presumably throwing his stuff after him into the street, shouting, how dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin at birth. That's abusive religious leadership. The preacher's point was that in John's Gospel, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have examples of very bad, abusive leadership. And then in chapter 10, Jesus stands up. And Jesus says, all the others who came before me are thieves and robbers. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, they were bad shepherds. But I am the what? The good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters the sheep. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Abusive leaders only care about themselves. But Jesus is the good shepherd who didn't load our shoulders with weight but who laid down his life under the weight of our sin. Who can you trust in an age of cynicism? You can trust Jesus. And may the boldness and the truth and the gentleness and the inspiration of Jesus shape our church family just like it shaped Paul. Amen.
Let's bow for a moment, shall we? Father, we're so thankful for your word. Father, we long for it to feed and nourish our souls. We pray that as we hear from this wonderful chapter, you would stir our hearts, that you would remind us of the incredible calling that, that, that you have called us to as your people. And Lord, may we demonstrate gospel integrity so that your gospel would have power. Lord, we pray for those who are vulnerable and hating, who find it hard to even comprehend words like these because they've been hurt so badly. Lord, we pray that your word would bring healing balm. We pray, Lord, that you would reassure us of your deep love for your children and help us not to be abusive help us not to be living our lives singing give me compliments help us Lord to lay our lives down for you and for one another and may you gain all the glory we pray in the good and beautiful and strong name of Jesus our Saviour Amen.